past quarter century or so, no particular issue in the area of food and the food system has generated perhaps as much attention as genetically modified organisms in food. What we're going to do today in food toxicology is actually try to introduce what GMOs are in food and, and talk a little bit uh, astray perhaps from, from what we've done previously in the course. We'll stray into the social ramifications, perhaps the bioethic ramif bioethical ramifications of GMOs in food, uh, as well as the scientific and regulatory science associated with uh, GMOs in food. Our learning objectives here today, what we're going to do is we're going to try to understand uh, the background, a little bit of the history of the GMO in food debate. Uh, we're not going to try and take sides here. There's a very passionate debate on both sides of the issue. Uh, we're going to try to identify some of the underpinning sensitivities uh, associated with this global issue. We're going to try to explore the range of crops and foods that currently do contain uh, GMOs in the marketplace. We're going to try to survey some of the current trends in GMO foods and their future implications, implications not only for the food but also for the science of biotechnology. We're going to try to understand some of the U.S. advances in regulatory controls for GMO foods, and we're going to try to review some of the early genetic engineering of uh, generally recognized as safe ingredients in foods. We're going to try to review some recent incidences of uh, GMOs in food. Uh, some mishaps, if you will, and some successes. And we'll also try to look at U.S. and international policies, again, focusing mostly on the U.S. and the EU in terms of GMOs in food and their policies. In terms of uh, GMOs in food, it's been the result of advances in biotechnology. What we found in the past several decades is that biotechnology advances in the laboratory have yielded some new tools that allow us to change what we have referred to as the fundamental molecules of life. What this does is it allows for engineering some desired genetic traits in plants, animals, and microbes in a very similar way that we have modified uh, plants and livestock through various traditional breeding programs over the past uh, century or so. We do, in biotechnology, have some new concerns about bioethics. And these are coupled with the debate of public health risks versus benefits. Uh, and we'll explore these as well. And some of the environmental risks and benefits, and we won't explore these uh, in, in, uh, in deep consequence here in this particular lecture. In terms of the products of biotechnology, we have genetically modified organisms. And these organisms are various plants, animals, and microorganisms. And that can be bacteria or viruses that we might want to change. Uh, to suit particular needs. And we've changed these genetic characteristics to artificially give them a new property. Some of those new properties in terms of what's being done in a laboratory, whether it be research laboratories in academia, research uh, in terms of corporate science, some of these uh, end products include enhanced uh, resistance of plants to disease and insects, some improvement in a nutritional value like a vitamin level uh, in a particular crop such as golden rice, uh, increased pro crop productivity, um, uh, plant tolerance in terms of uh, herbicide applications. So you've got the ability to use softer or safer uh, agricultural chemicals across a broader range of crops. Uh, and as well, functional food enhancement in terms of uh, uh, programs like the development of edible vaccines in food products. 
Now, recall in our discussions, we've reviewed, at least from a bacterial uh, point of view, the molecules of life to give you a sense of the numbers, the diversity, the range of, of molecules that might be changed in genetic engineering. Uh, obviously, in genetic engineering, we're going to be changing the single DNA molecule in terms of reproductive capacity, uh, but this will yield uh, other changes, including changes in the uh, plant or animal's RNA, yielding perhaps a diversity or a change in uh, output, uh, for example, of proteins. These can be en enzymatic changes, uh, proteins that have different sort of properties or uh, uh, components such as the expression of a protein like Bt toxin, an endotoxin in Bacillus thuringiensis that is used in terms of the genetic engineering of some crops. Now in terms of the bioethics of biotechnology, you can approach this from many different directions in terms of the fundamental principles of, of what's going on in this national and international debate. Uh, some people have an issue that perhaps we are playing God. Uh, should we be doing this, uh, dealing with these fundamental molecules of life, changing the essence of what organisms are in a very fundamental way? Uh, are we opening perhaps a Pandora's box, uh, uh, perhaps uh, with uh, cataclysmic results in terms of breeding uh, crops that become later super weeds that we can't control? Uh, should we have uh, some compassion or empathy, empathy for the, the new life forms, uh, these engineered animals, or in some cases, uh, humans? We are using biotechnology in terms of clones and gene therapy in humans uh, for medical reasons. Uh, is this an issue that we are going down a slippery slope where we can design super beings, whether it be plants, animals, or humans? what happens to the rest of us, the common plants, the biodiversity in the background. How do we balance risks? Are the potential gains, even if they are recognizable gains in medicine, the food supply, and the control of biology, is it worth the loss, the loss of innocence, the fact that we just know too much or are doing too much to nature around us, the loss of biodiversity, potential for cataclysmic results, again, like superweeds. Um, are there uh, shades of gray that we need to be concerned about, that we are entering the region where it's a slippery slope? Uh, if one attribute in a plant or animal or human is good, are more better? And then finally, uh, man's inhumanity to man. Uh, in our history, we found that every t new technology uh, necessitates a new war, as one quote I, I read. Uh, we've already seen in terms of terrorism that uh, and some of the warnings of terrorism that perhaps bioengineering of new microbes or viruses is on the horizon. Uh, pathogens that uh, will defeat any sort of medical therapy uh, to control them in the human population. In terms of uh, biotechnology, we also have a legal uh, dilemma. If you uh, have seen this, uh, some of these plants, uh, crops that have been uh, bioengineered have been patented. Now, if you recall, in terms of the patent system and patent protection, these are for products which are new or novel, uh, they're non-obvious, and there is a concept of substantially different, uh, the novelty aspect, uh, not substantially equivalent. 
And we'll see where that argument of substantial equivalence uh, actually is a, a bit of a circular argument in the legal dilemma associating, uh, associated with uh, the GMO uh, interaction in the food system. In terms of biotechnology, in recent histories, uh, we've found that it has had a bit of a troubling start. Uh, some of the initial high-profile products uh, were actually designed to help farmers and not necessarily have a direct consumer impact. Uh, these uh, benefits included enhanced pest control, uh, weed control. And so in terms of the consumers uh, who are essentially being faced with uh, these food products potentially entering the market system, uh, the question was, what's in it for me? And at that point in time, the general public understanding was perhaps not too very much. It's making uh, things easier for uh, farmers. We've had a tremendous amount of biotechnology inserted into the pharmaceutical arena. For instance, the development of uh, bacterially gener generated uh, insulin in terms of diabetic therapy. However, general consumers aren't really aware of the interface of biotechnology and medicine in the same way, in the same sensitivity that they are with their daily diet. There is uh, perhaps also a problem in terms of the trust us dictum of research and regulatory authorities because in several uh, highly publicized incidents, there were some uh, perhaps loss of faith uh, in terms of the public uh, with the scientific and regulatory community. The first of these was the appearance of the Terminator gene generated uh, by Monsanto, uh, a, a very uh, troubling uh, for many people in terms of bioethics, uh, a, a troubling development. This particular gene allowed the seeds uh, from the progeny plant uh, of biotechnology to actually be sterile. In other words, a farmer could not use those seeds uh, again. In terms of agriculture, and especially uh, developing, ag developing country agriculture, the ability of, to use seeds from one crop uh, to essentially seed or start the crop next year is an important part of historical agriculture. This was giving a corporate control to agriculture that you would have to go back to the vendor every year and buy new seed. Uh, in terms of uh, another high-profile incident, uh, in uh, 2000, there was an observation of Starlink, uh, Bacillus thuringiensis modified corn that was uh, regulated to be only in animal feed products, and it was found to have entered the human food chain. And we'll discuss uh, this particular incident in detail. Now, about the same time as uh, this was happening in the uh, 80s and 90s and early 2000s, some hazard data started appearing. Uh, this was also high profile. Uh, Cornell University scientists produced a study that 44% of monarch butterflies uh, grown near uh, in, uh, with uh, Bt corn pollen uh, had a, a significant lethality. Um, there was also some British reports that GM potatoes uh, inhibit rat growth and damage their immune system. Uh, both of these have been challenged in terms of the scientific arena, the back and forth of appropriateness of this data, but even still, the fact that biotech uh, did have some negative impacts was appearing on the uh, public's uh, plate, so to speak. Now, this was countered uh, by the biotechnology industry, recognizing that, in fact, they had not been sensitive enough to consumers' interests in the quality of their food. 
that in dealing with things like pest control and some, uh, some other issues uh, in terms of herbicide resistance, insect uh, uh, enhanced insect resistance, uh, the development of uh, what is referred to as uh, golden rice, uh, rice that has enhanced with uh, vitamin A, which is deficient in uh, many countries around the globe. Uh, this goodwill, um, and I'll call it a public relations uh, effort as well, uh, in earnest, uh, you have to give these companies credit, um, <clears throat> they essentially gave the uh, licensing and capability to develop this crop and grow it uh, away to the world's peoples uh, uh, for free. And so this was a response from uh, a, a major biotech company that, uh, in fact, uh, this is the promise of biotechnology and genetically modified organisms in food. Now, some of the concerns that we have with GMOs uh, in terms of uh, a broad segment of society, there are questions about food safety. There's questions about control of food supply. If we have a company uh, that is uh, doing things like terminator genes, what's their real approach in terms of uh, controlling the food supply? Uh, are we going to have our food totally vertically integrated in the hands of one, two, or three companies, international, global companies? Um, in terms of uh, uh, environmental impacts, uh, are we going to develop these super monocultures, only one type of corn, only one type of soybeans, and lose uh, the biodiversity that has helped us uh, in terms of controlling against uh, uh, emerging pests, emerging uh, illnesses or plant diseases, for example? Is there uh, a biodiversity risk via interbreeding? that once this gene has entered uh, the genomic trait of a uh, species, is there going to be interbreeding across species that will allow for essentially a contamination, a genetic contamination, uh, and loss of uh, perhaps wild types uh, out in the natural world? Uh, are there going to be non-target impacts? Uh, for example, with Bt toxin, uh, will beneficial insects also be impacted, such as the monarch butterfly? And then there's also the nightmare scenarios, uh, gene hopping, uh, transgenic monsters, uh, all of the things perhaps a little bit more of fancy, but in terms of uh, appropriate risk assessment, people have been concerned about this. Uh, for example, uh, the development of uh, herbicide-resistant genes for the brassica plant species uh, was actually uh, discarded early on because there are many weeds in the brassica family and the idea that although you might develop this for a crop, we might get some gene hopping and that herbicide resistance would be a disaster in terms of controlling uh, weeds uh, out there in agricultural environments. There's also, from a public perspective, a fear of the unknown. Uh, what is biotechnology? How does it happen? Uh, uh, from a public perspective, this is relatively high science. It's hard, perhaps, to translate what scientists are doing, what the controls are that are in place. Uh, the fact that, from the public perspective, it's not a natural process uh, is, uh, gives uh, uh, many uh, reason for pause, uh, as well as just the whole issue of, I like my food the way it is. Why do we have to change this, and is this changed? an overall improvement. In terms of some of the promises of GMOs, there are many, the more abundant and healthy food uh, in terms of enhanced nutrient cap capability. 
uh, less dependence on chemical pesticides if in fact you engineer the natural chemical defenses of a plant uh, better um, or differently. Uh, decreased production risk to farmers uh, in terms of damage uh, from pests and disease, uh, therefore higher yields, greater food for uh, a world that uh, perhaps doesn't have uh, sufficient food resources. Again, the other environmental positive is more agricultural yield uh, per land uh, mass to feed uh, this growing hungry world. Uh, right now, uh, we are uh, losing our rainforests and we are farming marginally arable land for short periods of time. We have issues of encroachment of desert sands in, in many parts of the world, including China, because of agricultural misuse of lands. Uh, we find that in terms of GMO, uh, genetic modified uh, changes in plants, we can be more precise than traditional breeding in terms of breeding in or changing uh, the plant organism to have desirable characteristics without introducing non-desirable characteristics, like enhancing the natural toxins that occur in the particular plant that may arise from traditional breeding. Um, and then the idea of the efficient production of life-saving medicines. Uh, again, insulin is perhaps the, the greatest example of this. Now, in terms of the GMO debate, uh, many uh, issues uh, have uh, surfaced. Uh, how are we going to test uh, these new products for their food safety? We've learned uh, throughout uh, the course here in food toxicology that the interaction of humans in their food system can actually in, uh, bring on foodborne disease from chemical changes. Uh, sometimes these are allergies. If uh, a patent uh, is uh, for novel products and a GMO uh, food developer is essentially claiming substantial equivalence that this is potato is the same as a, uh, uh, an old-style bread potato, uh, what does that mean? Because, in fact, it is perhaps genetically not equivalent, but in terms of the overall properties of the potato, it is substantially equivalent. Another area of GMO debate is coexistence with traditional crops. If we have cross-pollination, are we going to limit ourselves in terms of growers and the consuming public that have if nothing else, a preference for non-GMO foods or for different varieties of foods. Um, do people that have this preference or concern or, uh, in fact, in some cases, abhorrence of genetically modified organisms, uh, are they losing choice in terms of their food on their table? There is a potential for environmental impact. What the range of that potential is open to debate. There are economic impacts in terms of who controls the food system and how much uh, food is going to cost. Scientific information and misinformation in terms of uh, what uh, scientists have perhaps uh, said in the past and what regulator regulators have said in the past in terms of assuring, uh, for instance, uh, uh, the security of genetically modified organisms that are for just feed purposes. Uh, there are issues in terms of international, especially in terms of labeling, whether or not uh, uh, a label has to appear on a food product indicating that one of the components of that food product is genetically modified. And there are issues here in the United States 
and in international trade. With labeling comes traceability. Uh, can you, in fact, trace uh, a particular genetically modified organism uh, throughout all of the different segments of the uh, marketing and distribution system from farm to table, uh, whether or not you can actually trace these particular products. Um, there are issues as well in international and transboundary trade in terms of uh, economic unions like the European Economic Union and global trade in terms of what is uh, allowed and what is not allowed on a country-by-country -country basis. And there is an issue, too, about patenting a life form. Now, in terms of GMOs, we have several uh, risk and risk perception challenges as we identify all of the information and misinformation that might be out there in the public uh, arena. It has a lot to do with understanding risk and our personal acceptance and control of risk. One of the things we always talk about in toxicology is the risk assessment or safety assessment process. On a personal basis, risks that we take individually um, and things like smoking or extreme sports, junk food eating or uh, something like riding a motorcycle are substantially different from risks that I have limited or uh, no control over. Uh, for example, sometimes food safety or water quality or air quality issues. Uh, I can't necessarily change the quality of the air I breathe when I am a resident of Los Angeles. It's hard to rationalize these two different uh, types of risks and our sensitivity to those risks. Um, it's a troublesome incident when someone appears to be profiting from increasing my personal risk. Uh, so if there is a corporate influence about this, uh, we don't think of the makers of parachutes as necessarily uh, profiting from our risk-taking behavior or motorcycles, yet other uh, manufacturers uh, that we have less control over, less choice, uh, seem to have unacceptable control and therefore potential for profit on increasing our risk. There is uh, the uh, conundrum of first world versus second and third world uh, uh, approaches to issues uh, such as risk. If your life and livelihood is at risk at a high level on a daily basis, far more the third world or developing nation concern than, for instance, the first world concern, if you are worried about getting enough calories, period, in your daily diet due to uh, nutritional deficiency, famine, uh, the issue of trace genetically modified organisms in there is sometimes brought way out of context. In Africa, for example, um, there have been debates about the appropriate use of GMOs uh, in food and whether genetic engineering can help uh, a routinely uh, undernourished uh, population uh, in seg several segments of Africa and what the relative risks are versus the politics of GMOs. We have, uh, in terms of our risk perception, I always like to use the example of carcinogens in coffee and this uh, list of 20-some-odd uh, carcinogens in coffee. These are active carcinogens, yet uh, it is rare to hear about somebody uh, talking about the new coffee house down the street as a purveyor of carcinogens. Uh, this again is a, is a risk, whether it's known or unknown in terms of coffee drinkers, 
but it's a risk we choose to take. Uh, uh, whereas in some other cases, especially when somebody is profiting by a change or an additive uh, or an adulteration of a food product, this is perhaps a risk that we are unwilling to take. In terms of the scope of U.S. crops that are currently on the market, most soy, cotton, uh, and canola is GMO uh, in the United States. And so uh, if you've uh, uh, had concerns about the range, uh, this is where genetically modified uh, biotechnology, genetically modified organisms and biotechnology have had the largest impact in the U.S. food system. About half of the field corn, which is primarily used for uh, feed and grain, is also got some GMO component in it. Uh, the two major uh, genetic changes in crops have been for uh, glyphosate uh, resistance roundup, which is a crop uh, uh, herbicide, uh, and it's a resistance gene for the use of this particular chemical to kill uh, broadleaf plants. Uh, it's an herbicide. Um, and the other has been the incorporation of uh, the Bt toxin, the endotoxin from Bacillus thuringiensis, a good strong insecticide against uh, crawling insects. Um, there's about uh, uh, 10,000 acres of insect-resistant sweet corn, about 1,800 acres of virus-resistant summer squash, and about 1,100 uh, acres of virus-resistant papaya that papaya grown uh, traditionally as a crop in Hawaii. What we found in terms of recent history of GMOs and introduction of plants in terms of the marketplace, it's not only that we can do it, but there needs to be consumer acceptance that somehow or another the uh, genetically modified product has an enhanced desirability in terms of the consuming public. What we found that this has uh, been a challenge, GMO wheat, Tomatoes, potatoes uh, have all been abandoned uh, commercially uh, in recent history. They still may have a future in terms of the, uh, traditional uh, ch uh, challenges uh, against traditional breeding. Uh, the possibilities in the next five to ten years, we might find herbicide-resistant sunflowers, uh, we might find uh, canola and soybean oil, um, and we might find herbicide-resistant alfalfa and sugar beets. Uh, Again, trying to change uh, various properties, whether it be the nutritional qualities or the pest control on the farm properties of these particular plants. Now, in terms of current U.S. trends, this is uh, some data from 2005, and uh, ask, asking the question, if you examine the current trends in recent history, uh, is the, uh, the star of GMO uh, crops uh, not shining as brightly as perhaps it once won. A series of articles uh, based on some survey from uh, the FDA about the number of uh, actual um, completing the voluntary uh, consultation process in uh, FDA over the past decade has been in a decreasing trend, as you can see on this graph. Uh, the numbers of petitions out there for GMO crops has uh, uh, decreased as well uh, into single digits. Uh, instead of a growing trend, this is a uh, decreasing trend. In terms of U.S. regulatory review, because of uh, uh, enhanced scientific review need, uh, for instance, allergenicity, uh, enhanced public concern about the presence of GMOs in the U.S. food system, the U.S. regulatory review time between 1994 to 
1999, and the past uh, five years or so has just about doubled from 5.6 months to 13.6 months. And in the uh, uh, marketplace, uh, time is money. And so the idea of bringing it to market, doing the sufficient tests, uh, field plots, and then doing the appropriate reviews is a substantial investment of resources. In terms of the approved uh, GMO crops, these are genetically engineered crop petitions uh, approved by USDA. Uh, we saw in the early 90s uh, an enhancement, an increase in overall numbers, and then from that point in time, a steady decline such that there was only one in the year 2004 in terms of uh, approvals uh, for non-regulated status. And so there is perhaps uh, an interface here of uh, marketplace dynamics, uh, public uh, consumer interest in GMOs, uh, the potential uh, marketability of uh, these in terms of uh, uh, perhaps media representations, and also just the issue on personal uh, and community-wide debates on the role of GMO foods in the U.S. food supply. In terms of the implications of these trends, uh, it can be looked at uh, perhaps uh, in two ways. Uh, on an international basis, China and India are aggressively pursuing uh, biotechnology and product development. Uh, there's a question in terms of the scientific community of uh, uh, whether or not this development will continue in perhaps less regulated nations that don't have the infrastructure and the oversight uh, that the United States uh, has in terms of our regulatory science agencies, uh, that in perhaps uh, some of those uh, uh, issues, uh, cataclysmic endpoints in terms of environmental impact, uh, human food health, uh, gene hopping, gene transfer might be more uh, predisposed to happen in a less regulated, less oversight environment uh, uh, in other countries and perhaps in the U.S. There are implications for the global environment because of this and also for the global food system. If you look at China and India in terms of their populations, that represents a significant uh, majority of the world's population uh, and in terms of marketplace. They're obviously doing it uh, for their own good, but the U.S. is perhaps uh, uh, struggling with its own uh, biotechnology future. Uh, one of the implications is perhaps we are losing our grasp on food security if, in fact, uh, disease tolerance, uh, herbicide resistance, uh, pest resistance is, uh, is enhanced in other parts of the, country, of the world and their food supply, but perhaps not ours. In terms of our own uh, advances and controls on the interface between biotechnology and the U.S. food system. In the early years, 1975 to 1985, there was a healthy caution for recombinant DNA research. Uh, I recall the big binders of guidance uh, and permissions and approvals uh, if you were doing recombinant DNA research in the academic arena. Uh, a very thorough review system, uh, huge controls in terms of not letting these transformed genes escape from the laboratory. Many of these uh, policies and practices are still in play today. The public debate did influence policy and it did enhance the regulatory concerns for GMOs and GMO release into the environment. 
most of the concerns for some of the end products of biotechnology, the changes in, in uh, food, were actually covered uh, in U.S. food safety and environmental laws. The FFDCA, the Food Additive Amendments, uh, cautions against adulterated food. We did, even though this was a modern technology, we had in the amendments to the FFDCA in 1958 had the broad language that empowered regulatory action on genetically modified organisms in food. There was still the issue and debate uh, in terms of uh, U.S. patent law uh, and uh, in Congress about patenting new life forms, and this debate is ongoing. Now, in terms of the FDCA, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, it has the primary legislative authority for GMOs and food. In 402A1, we have the food adulteration statement that a food is adulterated if it contains any poisonous or deleterious substance which may render the food injurious to health. It regulates, uh, relates to unapproved substances that are added uh, unintentionally or intentionally uh, by man. And so this segment of the FFDCA actually has been uh, brought to bear in traditional breeding uh, end products where, in fact, the product uh, might have an enhanced toxin. Uh, we'll explore one case that we referred to once before in this course about uh, enhancing natural product toxicity such as solanine toxin in new breeds of potatoes. Now, in terms of the uh, Food, and, Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, uh, 402A1, uh, we do regulate these poisonous or deleterious substances uh, in addition to uh, a, a food adulterants. We look at pathogens, uh, chemicals uh, such as lead and, and uh, mercury, uh, chemicals uh, such as organic chemicals such as PCBs or uh, radionuclides. Uh, we do establish uh, tolerances or action levels uh, within FDA uh, based on metabolic profile of a contaminant, uh, the level of detection we might have, and the risk assessment. So example of this is lead in foods. We have uh, action levels associated with unacceptable uh, levels of lead in food. In the Food Additives Amendment in 1958, one of the three uh, sets of amendments uh, to the FFDCA, uh, it tells us in 402A2, a food is adulterated if it contains any additive, poisonous, or deleterious substance uh, except one that is either, and you recall this, food additives, and that's section 409, grass, uh, generally recognized as safe, a color additive, a registered pesticide, um, and recall that FQPA uh, actually gave us uh, a uh, Delaney Clause exemption that pesticides are not regarded as food additives, and it actually uh, set off a chain of events to have a totally different and separate and, uh, I would say, enhanced method of monitoring pesticide residues in foods from the FQPA. You have to note that uh, in this particular legal context that added means an intentional addition, so it would apply to a GMO unless it was exempt uh, as an additive or uh, as grass. Now the question that one can raise uh, is one of the difficult situation where we're adding something via uh, biotechnology such as the gene to produce Bt toxin 
A Bt toxin is a, uh, has uh, insecticidal activity, and so what's the interface between a particular food uh, change and its potential pesticide activity? Now, in terms of the segments of uh, FDCA and, and interface with uh, and grass, a food additive or uh, such substance that is generally recognized as safe among experts, um, and this is uh, something that we've learned here in food toxicology, is done by review panels. Um, there is a uh, prior recognition of uh, or uh, um, uh, linkage before 1958 uh, and for common uh, additives uh, in terms of uh, the food system. We learned uh, in our last lectures on uh, food additives that there is a battery of testing requirements. These are Red Book, uh, FDA Red Book testing requirements. Uh, if there is a, uh, to be an additive in a food product, uh, they range from acute and chronic toxicity tests uh, and development of all of the profiles of potential uh, toxicity of this particular um, food additive based on its uh, level of concern. Uh, this does perhaps also apply to new grass substances unless it can be defended in the petition that this is uh, essentially a common sense food additive uh, with a long history. Uh, without any potential for toxicological concern. In terms of how we do this and the relationship, this all goes back to the quantitative relationship between dose and response and the development of Noel's and Lowell's. Remember that these pieces of data are not extrapolations. These are real data points observed in clinical studies, uh, clinical rodent studies, mice and rats typically. And I just want to make that relationship that we do a comparative toxicology analysis. We do safety factors all up the risk uh, assessment chain to make sure that, in fact, uh, we are protective of the human population and subpopulations within the human population. In terms of the decision process, if we have an estimated daily intake, we want to make sure that that is below any sort of calculated uh, negligible risk intake. We do the assessment. We do a look at the natural components that might have changed in the breeding or the genetic modification process, processes. Uh, look for some unintentional uh, contaminants. Uh, take a look at uh, some of the added constituents and define an acceptable daily intake best on, uh, based on best toxicological information and food uh, modeling. Uh, add the, the safety factors, uh, see if it's grass-related is a, another approach. In terms of a plant breeding example, this is a, a classic one that's quoted many times, and this is University of Montana, University of North Dakota, and USDA Potato Research Lab that uh, developed a new variety of potato. Uh, Lenape is uh, what it was uh, called. Uh, it was for potato chips. It was submitted to the FDA uh, for approval, but it was found that the breeding, although there were many enhanced qualities in terms of uh, starches and ability to cook for potato chips, uh, they found that the breed had also uh, increased the solanine level. And again, this is traditional breeding, uh, so it was withdrawn from uh, introduction. Uh, the breeding successes that we have uh, that make up a huge amount of our food system 
uh, are actually a balancing act between uh, the enhanced nutrient or agronomic uh, 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 characteristics of the, the plant versus uh, the natural toxicant levels uh, that might also coexist, these secondary compounds. Uh, there's an article here that's uh, quoted um, at the bottom of this slide, uh, the growing of grass, uh, essentially talking about the history of, uh, of plant breeding uh, in the human food system. Now, what are the regulatory issues associated uh, with GMO in foods? Uh, we have to open up the question of what category of food ingredients uh, do GMO food-based uh, varieties fit into? Uh, do we characterize these uh, as food additives? Uh, are these adulterated foods or are they recognized as safe? If we are going to have GMO foods uh, in the food system, what are the safety criteria, the testing that we have, uh, what are the formal protocols that need to be submitted as each petition uh, is forwarded through the regulatory approval process? What uh, is the concept of substantial equivalence and how does it relate not only to the patenting of this new life form but also to the use of this in the human food system. Another issue is what role does the precautionary principle play? The precautionary principle in essence tells us that if we don't know enough we probably shouldn't be doing it uh, and this has a lot to do with things like life cycle assessment uh, trying to model all of the potential life cycle risks of a particular scientific development. In terms of FDA policy, and this is uh, May 29, 1992, uh, Code of Federal Regulations, uh, the safety of foods derived from new plant varieties, this is the operative policy. Uh, genetic uh, transferred material in foods uh, may be subject to either food additive or grass process. It's, and uh, the actual DNA itself is not a concern. DNA is readily digested in the gut. But in terms of an operative policy, um, in terms of whether or not it's going to be regarded as a food additive or um, grass, the trigger level for toxicants is an increase greater than 10% or a decrease in nutrients uh, of greater than 10%. Uh, the question needs to be addressed in the petition, is there a potential allergen? And we talked about proteins and how proteins can uh, perhaps make uh, for uh, allergic responses. Uh, for example, if you are working with a crop and you are working perhaps with peanut genes, uh, there is a potential for cross uh, transfer of some particular allergen or the development of an allergen that has cross-reactivity uh, across uh, some of the receptors in an allergic individual. This particular uh, uh, policy is the current working policy. There are about, about 50 products that have been uh, evaluated and uh, U.S. District Court has upheld this policy in September 2000 ruling. <clears throat> the basis of the current FDA policy uh, discusses that, uh, that animal feeding studies are uh, quite problematic. Typically when we do animal feeding studies, uh, we do uh, maximum tolerated dose uh, approaches. We try to induce disease, whether it be cancer or other sorts of uh, uh, negative uh, uh, endpoints. Uh, this is particularly difficult to do in a natural food product where uh, the substantial equivalence uh, 
suggests that uh, the changes are significantly less than 1% of the total chemical makeup of the plant material. And so feeding this particular uh, very low dose material in an animal study, a short-term animal study, uh, is going to be problematic because uh, no matter what, you're probably not going to get an outcome in the same way that if you low-dosed uh, traditional toxicants in uh, rodent studies at these very low doses, you would probably not see an effect. You would be below the lowest observed, uh, no observed uh, limits uh, in terms of dose response. We also find that uh, we do need some uh, enhanced multidisciplinary assessment based on the genomic traits. Uh, people that are experts you know, in the potato rice genome uh, and uh, the agronomic aspects of various varieties uh, can actually uh, be very useful in identifying uh, any sort of concerns for different uh, vectors of uh, change that might arise from uh, genetic modification. Uh, they can also tell us about the agronomic and quality analysis in terms of comparison. The allergy potential can be analyzed in terms of uh, uh, standard uh, allergen analysis, and we can also obviously analyze the toxicants and nutrients that might change in the base uh, uh, agricultural commodity. In terms of whether or not a GMO is regarded as an additive or grass, and this is the basis of FDCA uh, 402A2, uh, GMO food crop will need approval as a food additive if an introduced protein is different from a normal background protein. So otherwise, it would be uh, considered as grass. An example of this, for uh, instance, is the introduction of a fish protein into a potato for advanced, uh, enhanced uh, uh, freeze tolerance in terms of uh, growing conditions. This would be regarded as a, uh, a food additive rather than a grass petition. In terms of the food safety threats associated with GMOs, um, there are obviously some, some concerns about crossing transgenic species, uh, such as the fish antifreeze protein, uh, Brazil nut proteins with soybean for enhanced methionine quality. Uh, there's a different set of concerns in transgenics uh, than just adjusting the biochemical machinery. Uh, for example, uh, enhancing a gene so that a particular uh, vitamin output uh, in a, in a plant uh, is enhanced, um, a particular background nutritional quality. Some of the major concerns associated with GMOs in the food have to do with allergenicity, uh, development of uh, allergens uh, or potential allergens as some of the byproducts of GMO transfer. Uh, some of these have to do with the proteins that might be significantly large, about 10 to 70 kilodalton range, size range. Proteins that are resistant to digestion or flags, uh, as are uh, proteins that are stable to heat processing. Um, and when we find that the protein that is being expressed uh, is similar in amino acid homology to various allergen binding sites, again, that's a flag for potential concern in terms of allergic response in the consuming public. Uh, these are some of the aspects of food allergy that we reviewed in a prior lecture. In terms of uh, the regulatory or political point of view on biotech and GMO uh, food products, uh, the Office of Science and Technology Policy 1994, this is an executive office, uh, suggests that we should use risk-based scientific approach 
rather than focusing on the crop development process. Uh, the idea being uh, use a traditional uh, uh, approach to any food uh, crop uh, breeding development in terms of assessing its risk, enhancing nutrients, um, enhancing uh, potential food toxicants, uh, uh, rather than just classifying these as biotech. So the idea, or at least the uh, approach in this policy, was that uh, GMO crops should be treated like all food development uh, uh, classical breeding examples. Now, in terms of uh, how GMOs uh, entered uh, our food system, uh, one of the first instances uh, uh, of grass ingredients in food was uh, chymosin recombinant technology. Uh, what we essentially did, uh, you know, what researchers did was to insert uh, the gene for calf rennet uh, into E. coli. Uh, it is now used in about 80% of the world's uh, cheese making, and so this has had a significant uh, impact. Uh, what we've done here actually uh, is a, kind of a, a debatable sort of thing in terms of dietary preferences, perhaps uh, for vegetarians or vegans. Uh, vegetarians especially that uh, don't like to eat uh, meat products. Um, calf rennet is a meat uh, byproduct, uh, and so this actually makes this cheese product uh, more vegetarian, perhaps not vegan. Um, this, was, this particular uh, um, enzyme was deemed to be grass under uh, uh, Code of Federal Regulations 184-1685. Uh, and in very similar uh, circumstances to the various yeast, mold, or, or microbes that are already used in food uh, uh, development, food production. Uh, this particular uh, molecule had the same protein structure, so it had uh, a uh, chemical uh, uh, equivalence. Uh, the impurities uh, associated with the process were uh, mostly removed. The organism, the E. coli uh, bacteria uh, strain that was used in the production was destroyed in processing, and there was an antibiotic-resistant marker that it was also destroyed in processing. And so this was uh, essentially a uh, cheese enzyme that was uh, uh, made by a totally different process. Another early genetic uh, engineering uh, grass experience was uh, with an insoluble glucose isomerase, uh, and this is an enzyme used to make fructose from glucose. This was grass approval under CFR 184-1372 in August 1996. Uh, what essentially uh, we have here is that uh, this particular uh, enzyme was bound on a reactor bead surface. It doesn't go, doesn't go into the food. It, the food or the, the uh, raw materials pass in front of this enzyme, this bound enzyme, and does its conversion. Uh, it is a food processing aid. The first current of controversy developed uh, when Monsanto introduced uh, recombinant bovine somatotropin or uh, bovine growth hormone. Uh, and here, uh, this was a growth hormone or milk production hormone uh, to enhance uh, production uh, in uh, dairy and cattle. Uh, this uh, was neither grass, and it was not either a food additive. It was an approved new animal drug that was genetically uh, manufactured. 
We then saw in uh, the uh, early 90s uh, the development of uh, the flavor saver tomato uh, from Calgene uh, out of uh, some research developed at the University of California at Davis. Uh, they wanted food additive status for the enzyme uh, that they had incorporated. These were uh, flavor saver tomatoes, were shelf stable tomatoes with uh, enhanced. Uh, 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 shelf stability. Uh, the FDA findings uh, uh, says were essentially that the enzyme uh, was introduced was well documented. It was about 0.16 part per million. Uh, the enzyme was digested. The marker gene was easily digested. Nutrient level in this particular food product was the same. Uh, there was no changes in terms of the uh, tomato alkaloids. Uh, and there was no need for uh, special labeling. Uh, what we did find in Flavor Saver, and, and uh, it impacted the future of uh, Calgene, was that um, perhaps the market was not really ready. Uh, I remember seeing these on the market shelf. Uh, there was a curiosity, what does it taste like? Uh, this is essentially a new beast uh, in terms of the marketplace, uh, in terms of consumers. Uh, having direct access to a genetically modified food. I think uh, in terms of uh, my own observations, uh, uh, and in fact I was in Davis, California at this time, was uh, that the market uh, uh, greeted Flavor Saver with, with a yawn. Uh, they addressed a concern that was perhaps not significant enough in the marketplace to make a marketplace impact uh, to get a return on their uh, research investment. Some early uh, FDA approvals also included a squash, uh, disease-resistant squash in 1994, insect-resistant potato in 1995, herbicide-resistant soybeans, uh, these are with us today in terms of commercial production, and Bt corn in 1997 for corn borer resistance. Uh, this is still with us today. In terms of the international agencies and their, their review of genetically modified organisms in food, uh, the World Health Organization uh, in 1993 pronounced that marker genes are not a safety uh, issue. Uh, they represent one 250 thousandths of the DNA consumed in our normal diet. Uh, we digest uh, DNA uh, sufficiently in our gut. Uh, what they found was that the uh, safety aspects of GMO food of plant uh, origin was essentially uh, uh, not a great uh, concern uh, in terms of uh, overall public health. In terms of some of the pronouncements of uh, scientists and the scientific community, there was uh, an article in Nature Biotechnology that appeared in the year 2000 uh, that the safety and labeling standards for foods, food ingredients, and fresh feeds should be applied regardless of the techniques uh, used in their production and manufacture, essentially paralleling the 1994 Office, and Scientific, uh, Office of Science and uh, Technology Policy uh, out of the Executive Office. Uh, they go on to say that genetic engineering may actually be safer and more precise than conventional breeding in terms of controlling the overall end product uh, and having substantial uh, defining uh, results uh, and not necessarily leaving things to uh, the uh, less precise uh, conventional breeding. Uh, they uh, suggest that foods should be uh, assessed on the basis of substantial equivalence, there's that term again, 
with labeling required only for GM foods that significantly uh, differ in composition or nutritional value from their conventional counterparts. Uh, it identifies that labeling of GMO foods in the United States is a major issue. Now, what is this substantial equivalence uh, principle that we hear about in terms of the GMO debate? Uh, this term is not in any uh, formal FDA document. Again, it goes uh, to include a reduction uh, of less than 10% in key nutrients, an increase by less than 10% in a natural non-added background toxicants, the naturally occurring typically plant toxins, uh, that the new proteins are well characterized and they do appear in other foods. So this is not a new chemical that is not in the food system. Uh, the source of the gene is well characterized, uh, that uh, the need for feeding trials because of what feeding trials actually show us uh, is questionable. Uh, there is a real concern for allergenicity. Uh, this is uh, uh, a lot in terms of uh, there is a protocol in terms of developing uh, 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 a data set on whether or not a particular protein in a food is going to be uh, allergic and we need to go through those allergenicity uh, trials to see if in fact this is going to be of concern. Allergenicity is probably represents the greatest food toxicology risk of GMO foods. In 1987 the National Academy of Sciences uh, came out with policy statement uh, in terms of a review of genetically modified organisms in food. Uh, the key issues uh, that they identified that there is no evidence in current uh, biotechnology application to foods of a unique hazard, uh, especially when compared against conventional breathing. The risks are similar to the introduction of unmodified organisms or those modified by conventional methods. In terms of uh, how we do uh, identify, for instance, uh, 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 food products that have been modified uh, but are only uh, allowed by regulation uh, in, for instance, uh, food animal products and not uh, in the human, uh, the direct uh, uh, human food chain. Uh, the problem associated with this is uh, that uh, corn is sometimes corn in terms of the production cycle of uh, farm to plate. And in terms of the transport industry, uh, farm trucks and silos, train cars, barges, boats, train cars, and trucks that are handling one commodity one day can handle another commodity the next day. And so this yields a very large potential for contamination uh, if, in fact, you were looking for purity of non-GMO uh, food types. There are also analytical challenge in terms of evaluating the percent GMO. Uh, do we do this on the farm, at a commercial silo, at a processor? Is there a potential for mixing and transport? Uh, bulk commodities are quite often warehoused uh, together. Do we need separate uh, commodity uh, warehousing for GMO foods in terms of controlling uh, their entrance uh, and potential impact in the human food system? Uh, there's also the cost of the testing, uh, the food system, uh, food production system is uh, a small margin industry. There's not a whole lot of farmers that are getting rich these days uh, in, in farming. 
There's a time issue in terms of turnaround of tests. Uh, these are perishable goods. Uh, it's the same reason why perhaps uh, we have very limited, uh, on a statistical basis, pesticide monitoring. Uh, and uh, we do, uh, 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 don't have many sort of holdups in the whole perishable food transport system due to uh, analytical testing. There's also an issue of sample size and reliability statistical significance. Uh, for instance, if it's a contamination problem, and perhaps 1% of uh, a non-GMO corn is contaminated uh, with uh, um, uh, a GMO uh, corn product, uh, is that uh, contamination homogeneous? So how do we test a silo of corn if, in fact, it's just one particular segment uh, that has been contaminated? It's not thoroughly mixed. It's uh, a very uh, non-homogeneous uh, material. There are also some uh, problems associated with allergen analysis, uh, the extraction. We denature many of these proteins uh, when we do the extraction and analysis. They'll lead us to false positives or false uh, negatives. Uh, there is uh, a need for specific ELISA tests, uh, enzyme-linked immunosorbent assays. Uh, we do have some of these available for some allergens associated with major food products, but not necessarily for all of them. One of the big issues uh, in terms of recent history, uh, and we talked about the trust us dictum, uh, regulators were saying that we have a uh, mechanism in place to, uh, uh, for food safety. Uh, and uh, this particular incident, uh, the BT corn, Adventist BT corn incident or Starlink incident, actually highlighted uh, some troubles in terms of the regulatory science associated with GMO introduction into the U.S. food system. Uh, Starling corn has the Cry9C based BT toxin protein. This is a bacterial endotoxin uh, for uh, crawling worms. Uh, it actually uh, had its approval in uh, federal regulation 28258, the Solstharin subspecies tollworthy Cry96 protein and the genetic material necessary for its production in corn, <clears throat> exemption from the retire requirement of a tolerance. And so this gave the regulatory approval for this particular uh, genetically modified organism in food. Now, we started uh, having some analysis requirements uh, in terms of EPA allergenicity evaluation. Uh, there was no known homology of the eight amino acid sequence in this particular uh, end product, but uh, they also are regarding the reality that we just don't know all the different uh, uh, homologies of allergen receptors. They did find that Cry9C was actually resistant to digestion. This is a marker for allergenicity, and it is also stable in thermal processing, another concern in terms of allergenicity. Its molecular weight was in, at 68 kilodaltons, was in the upper range, and so it's a large enough protein to elicit uh, an immune response. And thus, uh, EPA uh, wanted uh, some approval, uh, warned an approval that it may be linked uh, to uh, food allergy. Uh, there are other EPA arguments in terms of the risk benefit uh, associated with reduction in pesticides, uh, safer agricultural practice, uh, that did allow this for approval. There is an abundance of this, uh, uh, the, there, there is a low abundance of this protein, 
but if you go into the patent, it argues uh, that this particular protein has high toxicity. Uh, this whole toxicity issue is another issue in terms of uh, essentially a bacterial endotoxin in a f introduced into a food product. Um, there is uh, low potential for environmental exposure, but there is a question about corn dust and workplace uh, uh, occupational exposure of people that are on corn dust uh, in milling operations, in silo operations, storage and transport uh, individuals. In terms of the Starlink corn problem, what we had was Adventus was uh, uh, producing this particular uh, uh, corn uh, with the Bt toxin protein incorporated into it. Uh, its approval was given in 1998, but it was restricted to animal feed because of the uh, allergenic, uh, allergenic potential based on the allergenicity flag criteria. Uh, in September 2000, a consumer group, Friends of the Earth, analyzed taco shells and they found uh, this particular protein, the Bt protein, in taco shells, essentially alerting regulatory authorities that uh, uh, the best case scenarios of control uh, in the uh, food distribution, food transport system uh, was uh, faced with a major breakdown. On September 11th, uh, 2000, uh, Friends of the Earth called on EPA to remove uh, these particular corn products. Uh, Taco Bell, uh, the manufacturer, begins a recall of tacos from supermarkets and Safeway and other products uh, uh, made by uh, Kraft uh, were also recalled. On uh, October 10th of 2000, uh, Adventist Crop Science uh, uh, was declared financially responsible by EPA uh, for this failure of control uh, within the food distribution system, uh, that it wasn't the farmer's fault uh, in terms of uh, the segregation of this feed corn from uh, the human food uh, corn uh, distribution pathway. In terms of how this problem progressed, uh, on the 18th of October in the year 2000, uh, Kellogg shut down its corn flakes uh, cereal plant. Uh, the idea, the major uh, concern at that time was their potential for allergen and allergic response in the food products being produced at the plants. On the 19th, Adventus said the problem is that farmers commingled corn uh, into human food destined corn and so was trying to essentially say that it was uh, an on-the-farm uh, mix-up of 260 grain elevators. Uh, about 106 uh, sent out food to uh, food processors, uh, which is about 12% uh, Starlink corn, or about 9 million bushels in terms of the mix-up. In terms of newspaper accounts of the impacts uh, for grain millers and grocers, uh, this is from an article on uh, October 10th uh, uh, of 2000. Kroger and Albertsons remove cereal and tacos, corn-based products. Mission Foods recalls all tacos. Uh, they're the largest uh, U.S. maker of those. Azteca Milling uh, takes back all its uh, yellow two corn flour products from stores. ConAgra stops operations at a Kansas corn flour mill. Uh, it does not uh, decide to uh, disclose its list of customers. Uh, November 3rd, FDA announces uh, over 300 products from their investigation had potential risk. Again, this potential risk was primarily allergenicity. In terms of some commentaries that appeared on the incident in newspaper articles, uh, Representative Arkansas Children's Hospital 
says right now sensitivity to the protein is unknown. Uh, USDA and the FDA and EPA says uh, there is little risk, if any. Um, Les Crawford from Georgetown University, who went on to become the uh, commissioner of the FDA, uh, was quoted as saying, it's not the human health risk that is concerning, it is that it got there uh, in the first place. Uh, Cargill Chairman uh, W. Stanley uh, said that uh, the problem appears to be under control, but uh, there was uh, a breakdown in the process by uh, irresponsible procedures by a few in the chain. There is a process of protocols to be followed. Unfortunately, people didn't handle things correctly. In terms of the relative risk assessment, scientists did testify to EPA uh, about the particular risks associated with this incident and follow-up analysis. Uh, you'd probably need uh, repeated long-term exposure. Remember that we need a sensitization followed by a secondary exposure at least uh, to develop uh, a food allergy. Uh, Cry9C accounts for about 0.13% uh, of the uh, corn grain. Uh, and in terms of scientific analysis, most allergens make up to 1 to 40% uh, of the food. So it's a, a clear sort of uh, dose response in terms of food allergy. Uh, this clearly, the quote is, would not produce protein levels of any health concern. So um, there was a diminishment of potential risk due to the uh, involvement of this particular protein in the human food chain. Now moving on in terms of uh, international and transboundary um, analysis uh, and management of genetically modified organisms, uh, the UN Secretariat of, of the Convention on Biological Diversity <coughs> published the Cartagena Protocol in the year 2000. Uh, the major uh, issues identified in that relative to GM genetically modified organisms in, and uh, food production uh, were the adequacy of biosafety procedures. Uh, there was concern about the conservation uh, and biological uh, diversity issues related to GMOs. Uh, concerns about human health and concerns about transboundary movement in terms of uh, the global marketplace for food. We uh, find that uh, in terms of international management of food additives, uh, that the, uh, uh, there is an interaction between GMOs and the Codex Alimentarius. Again, this is the word health organization food standards. The specific documents uh, in terms of uh, uh, management uh, statements are, are uh, principles of the risk analysis of foods derived from modern biotechnology, published in 2003. The guideline for the conduct of food safety assessment of foods derived from recombinant DNA plants, and that was published in 2003. And then also the guideline for the conduct of food safety assessment of foods produced using recombinant DNA microorganisms. Uh, and that also was published in 2003. Now in terms of uh, how we can explore um, the impacts of GMOs uh, in uh, another part of the world, uh, what we're going to do next is talk about the European experience and this current kind of state of policy associated with genetically modified organisms in food uh, for Europe. Uh, in terms of uh, the past uh, decade or so in Europe, uh, this has been a harsh time uh, for agriculture. Uh, if you recall, the uh, BSE, uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, or mad cow uh, 
disease incident uh, in the UK. Uh, there was uh, kind of uh, the uh, ministry agencies uh, in, of agriculture in the UK uh, essentially uh, tried to calm the situation down, but it did end up with uh, 80 people dead uh, from this particular uh, uh, disease. Uh, in 1999, uh, there was a dioxin contamination in Belgium. Uh, we're going to talk about that here in Food Toxicology in uh, our dioxin and related compounds uh, uh, lecture uh, later this semester. Uh, it resulted in uh, hundreds of thousands of animals being uh, put down in a contamination uh, of uh, the uh, food supply in a significant area of Europe due to uh, dioxins and PCBs being incorporated into animal feed. The EU, the European Union, does have some concern over the lack of data, uh, so it's invoking precautionary principle. Uh, we don't know enough, so let's not approve it. Uh, in terms of the EU and international issues, uh, there is some food safety uh, for uh, in terms of the relationship uh, of patents, international patents, labeling, regulations, and controlled are uh, major issues in terms of uh, uh, transboundary movement of these products. Uh, there are big issues in terms of uh, uh, production agriculture, especially truck farms and smaller agricultural operations. Uh, can there be coexistence of genetically modified and conventional crops? Uh, are there going to be cross-pollination? Can we maintain a freedom of choice uh, in terms of the coexistence of uh, these two types of food products in the marketplace? Uh, currently, for example, uh, the United States is a major exporter, uh, international exporter of soybeans. The EU uh, chooses to go to South America for their soybeans uh, as GMO-free. The European Union, in terms of policy statements, have issued several directives and regulations. They're cited on this particular slide if you want to do a little bit of uh, uh, research in terms of following them out, in terms of uh, the focus of how they have attempted to manage transboundary movement, labeling, and contamination. The major themes that we find are labeling, uh, traceability, maintaining traceability, uh, contamination currently in the EU, less than 0.9% so, um, of a GMO in a food product uh, is, uh, uh, is unregulated. Greater than 0.9% is regulated. And so what they're doing is identifying that there is the potential for contamination in all of the handling uh, um, uh, aspects of uh, GMOs in the food chain. Uh, there are also some issues, again, of substantial equivalence and transboundary movement. In terms of the EUs, there are some fears uh, that local ecosystems will be compromised, local agricultural agronomic operations will be compromised, uh, the niche markets of developing organic products and local varieties, very popular in European agriculture, will be diminished uh, by the introduction of uh, super crops. Uh, many of the member states in the EU have a temporary moratorium on the cultivation of GM crops uh, and they're concentrating instead on uh, things like integrated and sustainable agricultural practices, again by a local social or political choice. 
In terms of the current EU status, uh, what we find is that there are no genetically modified products that have been approved for importation into the EU since 1998. The new stricter regulations uh, on labeling and tra traceability took place in October 2003. And so this uh, definitely has been an impediment in terms of global trade and perhaps has been one of the dynamics that's been looked at in terms of the marketplace and the influence of the marketplace on uh, the progression of GMOs in the human food system. Well, that uh, is uh, essentially our introductory approach to many of the issues, the background, the science technology, uh, and, and also some of the uh, science associated with uh, the food additive and the management of GMOs uh, in the human food system, uh, especially from a food toxicology point of view. Uh, next time what we're going to do is talk about uh, uh, food processing, if you will. We'll start uh, talking about uh, a, a way to uh, manage uh, uh, enhancing the, uh, uh, the food safety of food products and the shelf life of food products via a process called food irradiation. Until that time, we'll see you later. Thanks.